Well, Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we are joined by Dr. John Welter to discuss Disney Princesses, non-destructive evaluation of aircraft, and how a next-generation assessment system is creating a virtual car wash for fighters. In three, two, one. Well, welcome to the podcast, John. Hey, thanks for having me on, Michelle. Kenneth. Now, we know you're a materials engineer within the, the laboratory, but we're here to ask you some hard-hitting questions about your job and a few things outside your job. So we're going to start with, who's your favorite Disney princess? Ooh, that's off the wall. But I do have one in mind. I'm going to go with the uh, a princess from... Acquired Disney properties. Let's let's go with that. And we'll go with uh, Princess Leia from the Star Wars series. So since she's been bought by uh, Disney, so I think she counts. I mean, being a Star Wars fan that many of the fans have heard me talk about, I'm inclined to agree. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, Disney yeah. has bought them. So you are right. By all technicality, she is a princess now. And I mean, being rebellious, a go-getter, helping run the rebellion herself alongside Mon Mothma. I mean, you can't get cooler than that. No, no. Definitely a hero of mine. So, yeah, I mean, Michelle. I mean, I'm sure you have your own. I mean, mine. I almost say. I mean, it feels like I'm cheating saying Princess Leia because you already did. So I'll say my number one would be Leia. But if I had to pick a second, I've always loved Aladdin. Jasmine's pretty cool. I also like very similar to Leia. Very better attitude. Not taking no from anybody. It's got a lot of fight. I've always liked that. So uh, that's who I settle with. But who do you think, Michelle? Who's your favorite? You know, I'm going to go with Snow White, the original gangster of the Disney princesses, <laughs> right. the OG, 1937. Yes. See, put it on that. You're right. Started off strong. Uh, and the reason we yeah. ask this is not only to have fun with that, but a lot of these classic tales that Disney pulls on uh, comes from the Grimm's fairy tale or Grimm fairy tale books. And books are important to your, uh, a lot of the, uh, what's happened here to build you up to this point being an engineer. So question we want to ask is, are there any books you find yourself holding on to from your days as an engineer in training or even in school? I've kept virtually all of my books from undergraduate and graduate school, much to my wife's dismay. I can't get rid of them. In particular, I have a uh, chemistry book that was my dad's growing up that I uh, I looked at a lot growing up and has probably helped me on the, the science and technology track. As you can imagine, it, it, it's kind of old. The, uh, the latest element in it is uh, 103, and I think we're out to... 112 or something now somebody will correct me i'm sure so i mean that's crazy to think about how i mean quickly that can update i mean obviously we're always discovering new things finding out new uh, you know materials new elements what have you i mean i remember my old chemistry book back when i was trying to be a chemist and i am positive that is out of date i got that like 99 so at this point I i'd love to kind of go back there and see like hey what's changed since then uh, but like you i just can't seem to get rid of those books i've got a, a sentimental attachment to them oh definitely definitely they're like old yeah. friends. You got to keep them around. The dark ages of 1999. Wow. Long, long time ago, Ken. <laughs> yeah, that's a long, long time ago. <laughs> but yeah, but I, far, far away. See, keeping that Star Wars tie. I love it. Um, and you mentioned something interesting there. So a lot of your love for STEM, did that grow from reading old books that um, your family had in the home then? Yeah, yeah. I was bored as a kid. Wasn't motivated to get a job to buy new toys, so I uh, made do with what I had. And there was books on the shelf, so it was kind of fun to thumb through them and see what was in them. 
obviously my dad had a lot of engineering textbooks too but the chemistry one for some reason that that struck my fancy well following that then where did that take you like after getting interested in these books chemistry and even engineering like i imagine in college you followed a, a similar track or how did that end up connecting you with afrl I did a lot of chemistry at the local college through like a post-secondary program, which a lot of people are doing these days. Got into Wright State, started looking for co-op jobs, and uh, did a SOCHI as a co-op student with the uh, ceramics. At the time, it was a ceramics branch in RX. There's been some reorganizations. There isn't like a ceramics branch anymore, but I co-opted with that group through my undergrad there. At graduation, they weren't hiring, but I did get a job, coincidentally, across the hallway from the ceramics group with the uh, non-destructive evaluation branch, which has also been renamed in various reorganizations to the uh, material state awareness branch now. So we got a little bit broader mission than just non-destructive evaluation. And what is non-destructive evaluation? Uh, non-destructive evaluation is a little bit like medical testing for aircraft. It's to kind of put it in a very broad analogy. Um, we use a lot of the same physics and technologies, just they're adapted for uh, metallic parts, composite parts, a variety of things. So if you get an ultrasound done, we use ultrasound to look for cracks and thinning materials in aircraft. We also do things like x-rays to look for cracks or uh, thinning in aircraft parts. Also use what's called eddy current which is an electromagnetic technique to look for imperfections in metallic components. Ultrasound, we do a lot looking for cracks, but we also look for things like delaminations and impact damage in composite materials as well. There's several more techniques, but that's just kind of NDE in a nutshell. NDE is widely used in the aircraft industry. Commercial industry uses it to ensure safety of flight of their aircraft. Oil and gas pipelines, there's millions of miles of it out there, and the majority of it's inspected at some point, one or one time or another, to keep the oil and gas industry from losing product across these miles and miles of the landscape that they pump across. It's cool stuff. Absolutely. Well, and in, in important stuff, I imagine. Let's just make it simpler for our listeners. I'm sure you could use it for a, a lot of materials and and processes and things. But you know, planes, Air Force. Let's just think planes, and we think about our maintainers that have to go through regular. We call it depot maintenance, and we can have you explain what a depot is too. But if you're able to detect a, a crack or a failure or a delamination, you know that impacts the the maintenance schedule. Um, which is money and time and flying hours and all kinds of stuff. So Absolutely. maybe let's dive a little bit into, you know, what our maintainers do um, at depots. What's a depot? How is that important to the Air Force and what you're doing to support our warfighters? For those that don't know, Air Force depots or Air Force logistics centers are where aircraft go for PDM or periodic depot maintenance. So every number of years, it's on a schedule typically, all the aircraft make their way through one of the one of the depots that handles them and they take off a lot of the covers and they look inside and they do a lot of these NDE inspections looking for cracks and damage inside the structure that's accumulated over these years. So it's very important to ensure safety of flight that uh, NDE is there and available to the uh, depots in order to capture these defects. There's been some high profile cases in the past where we weren't inspecting a particular part and you know something went down. So we try and capture all that before it actually happens. Whereas the depots are kind of on like a time schedule. Um, 
there's also inspections done at the field level as well, usually on shorter timescales, and they're usually not disassembling nearly as much as depot maintenance. Depot maintenance does the upgrades and they swap out major parts and things that are damaged. The, the field is really just kind of looking to make sure everything looks good on the way towards that next major depot maintenance. However, if the field finds something when they're doing their inspection, then they call back to the program office engineering support and engineering support will tell them how to handle that damage, whether they repair it there at the base or whether they authorize some kind of unique repair to do a one-time flight to a, a maintenance facility. It, it, there's a lot of it depends because each situation is a little bit unique when they find something out in the field. But it's a lot of pieces. Everybody's working together to keep them flying. So going to the uh, the theater of the mind, if you will, and trying to visualize a lot of this. So uh, for our listeners, um, when you're actively, your team is looking for these or helping at these depots, wherever it may be, to scan these aircraft, uh, to check for imperfections or any issues, are these handheld devices? Are they being scanned by large overhead cameras? Like, what does it look like? We run the complete gamut of technologies. The field bases are typically using more handheld devices because those are typically easier to use. It's single inspector or something. Bases typically don't have large investments in a huge facility to inspect their aircraft. Depots run from handheld units to get into tight locations. They also have larger units that process, say, large numbers of turbine engine components or something. If they're doing production, you know, thousands of similar parts, they have a, a facility to manage that. Some of the radiography facilities can be quite big if they need to do x-ray computer tomography or radiographs. So some of the depots have much larger um, facilities dedicated to um, inspection things like x-ray facilities or uh, x-ray computer tomography facilities to do large parts. X-ray facilities aren't, aren't the only ones, but um, some depots have large production systems to do massive quantities of, say, eddy current inspections on turbine engine components or something like that. There's very few Air Force Logistics Centers, so the investment makes sense to put large facilities in these couple places versus having large facilities with big investments at every base. Our research kind of runs the gamut. We work on the handheld devices, if there's a need for that, all the way up to some of these larger systems, if the Air Force has a need. Where I sit is kind of the more longer term research projects. So something on the order of a year longer, it's kind of a wag. Also within RX is the System Support Division, and they have CSI for aircraft failures, that group's in there. So they do all the failure analysis if there is something that's found failed out in the Air Force. And then part of that division also is system support, where they also do some non-destructive testing and evaluation. They do much less development. They're mostly trying to take stuff directly off the shelf and apply it as best they can to a very near-term need. So somebody finds something that they're not inspecting, finds damage in the field that they're not inspecting for currently, it goes there first to try and develop an inspection for that area to find, is there more damage out there in the field? If system support can't deal with it with the current technologies that are either commercially available or that the inspectors in the field and depot have, then 
the problems kind of roll back to us because they're tougher problems. It takes a little bit more work. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. That really condensed a lot of that and makes a lot more sense as to how you conduct your work, the importance of the work, like we talked about, doing a lot of this preventative, like making sure if there's an issue, we, we find it and make sure these can keep, uh, aircraft keep flying. Um, but you mentioned something interesting, saying a lot of where you sit is doing more research. So are you doing a lot of uh, more, I would say, uh, adapting new ways to do it more efficiently to find these structural like uh, issues or things that arise and maybe find it more accurately? Or what kind of research is your team doing? We work on both accuracy and repeatability and reproducibility. As you can imagine, like a single inspector out there with a hand probe has a very difficult job trying to look for cracks with the technology in very difficult to inspect areas. This being a podcast, it's really difficult to explain the complexity of some of these structures. But if you can imagine, some of these structures have multiple layers and you want to detect cracks in any given layer. And these aren't just like flat plates that are stacked on top of each other. You can have joints and you can have curved things that join together. You can think of or remember the ugliest metal joint structure that you can think of ever seeing. There's probably one like it out there in the Air Force and we have to inspect it just for an example. So that it, it's a really tough problem. So if you're trying to find very small cracks or in this part, it's very difficult, especially if you can't look for the crack from the part or the side of the part that's the easiest to see the crack from. Where the crack is is like on the inside of the aircraft and you can only inspect it from the outside. That's kind of what we're dealing with because you know, no one wants to take the aircraft apart if they don't have to. So we want to try and look at it from the, from the outside to try and find the crack on the inside. Crack being just one example. I mean, when I say crack, I'm really talking about, you know, any defect that we're looking for, delaminations or corrosion or material thinning or anything. Gotcha. And that's, I know we've touched on a lot of the different methods you guys are actually able to scan with. And you talked about the complexity of some of these materials. Like you said, the ugliest thing you could imagine all stacked together. So is there specific scanning methods that work better versus, let's say, uh, metals versus ceramics versus other materials? Or is there kind of a, a catch-all that works for everything? No, there there is definitely no one magic technique that works for everything. It It's much like when you go to your doctor, an MRI is going to tell them certain things about your shoulder or something. An x-ray is going to tell them something different. So from an NDE perspective, if we're going after laminations and composites you know we might pick up ultrasound first as might be the best technique for that problem if we're looking for cracks and metallic parts especially especially surface breaking cracks we're probably reaching for eddy current first it, it really depends on the problem the challenge working in this field is you get comfortable with certain techniques and you understand the physics at least from the research side we get comfortable with a particular set of physics and a particular technique sometimes. And so everything kind of looks like that particular hammer we're used to using when really we need to pick up a different tool. We really have to keep a really open mind in how we go after these problems in this area. It's a very diverse field really between the physics and the materials that we have to cover. When I imagine if you think about different aircrafts and systems, I mean, planes have been around for 70 years or they've been around for five years, you're, you're inspecting them, lots of different materials, different technology, uh, very, very complex. And, and also what's cool, I think that 
you know, you can detect problems before they happen, but you could also decide where maybe more risk we're taking, we're not taking enough risk or something like that. For example, you know, uh, the old standard I think was that, Hey, the oil in your car needs changed every 3000 miles. That's our depot maintenance if we're driving a car, right? But maybe with a synthetic oil or a different engine, maybe you can go 5000 miles. And instead you were throwing away 2000 miles of serviceable stuff where you you know, you took your car out of service. Maybe for us, it's only, you know, 15 minutes for an oil change. But for a plane, if, you know, you're redoing a wing and you could be out for, I don't know, months or weeks or, you know, lots of flying hours. And that impacts readiness of, of when we need those aircraft to be certain places. So there's a lot of money behind that. Or maybe we maybe we were taking too much risk and you're like, I can't believe you were flying this this long because you could you can detect something that this is actually needs maintenance before we thought it did because you have this new technology, the physics, the the machines uh, to, to decide, hey, you know, we were doing our best guess with our inspection techniques, but this NDE stuff, you can really get um, a lot more accurate information and data. Absolutely. And there's, there's different groups within RX and other places that are, are looking at the data that we collect on from the field and they are also generating a lot of their own data based on material models and um, experiments run in the lab and uh, experiments that they run on maybe actual aircraft parts and simulate and in um, very controlled ways where they're trying to understand exactly how these parts fail by the time we find a crack a certain size, how much more life does it have from that size? And they're trying to take all of this into account and um, be able to buy back some of that life that we were typically kind of throwing away before. Now, some of these parts, as you can imagine, are very expensive. Like nickel engine alloys are, are, are incredibly expensive. Very large wing structures are expensive just because they're big wings. Um, and you don't want to have to replace those on a time scale just because you're comfortable that you're not going to fail one if you replace them all by this time. You really want to get all the life you can out of them if you can. But you also want to be very safe. And we know one of the other exciting projects you're working on now is called Next Generation Assessment System that kind of works like an aircraft car wash is how we've heard it described. Can you paint us a, a little deeper picture there? The Next Generation Assessment System uses what we believe it, it currently is the world's largest fringe projection system in order to look for very small defects in the paint and coatings on the outside of an aircraft. As you can imagine, the Air Force paints aircraft to both make sure that they last longer, they look great, you know, but there's also unique properties there that they want to make sure that there's a bunch of cracks. It doesn't doesn't behave the same way. It doesn't look as good, all that kind of stuff. So that's what they, uh, what the system is trying to do. And the next generation assessment system is for fighter size aircraft. So not like the really large cargo planes yet, but there's nothing to say that we couldn't expand it in time. The premise is that you have your fighter, it lands for the day, and then it rolls into basically a, a band like lighting structure so it's the aluminum steel framework that uh, big concerts use to hang their lights on while well, we're hanging a bunch of these fringe projection systems and cameras on it. And so the aircraft will roll under this system. All these cameras and projectors will fire in the optimum way in order to, in order to capture 
any and all deviations on the surface of the aircraft that might be of interest to us. And then it will output a report to the inspectors so that they can then go and look at, you know, ones that may be questionable. The system will likely be able to identify the really bad ones and there won't be much action by the inspector other than to go out and repair it. So it's a really cool system. How quick would the system work then? So is it kind of a very thorough back and forth scan, almost like a printer scanning something, or is this kind of like a pretty quick turnaround? Like, what does it look like? It's a pretty quick turnaround. All the projectors fire independently in an order so that they don't interfere with one another to cover the entire surface. And each data set overlaps a little bit so you don't miss anything. If I'm remembering correctly, the entire like data collection process takes about 30 minutes. And then you process the data a little more to pull out all the defects. But it's not done on like a supercomputer or anything, just a high-end workstation. So, you know, we're looking at, I think, about another half hour, an hour to process the data, at which point you pull one aircraft in, you do its half hour scan, that aircraft's pulled out, we start processing that data set, the next one comes in and it's collecting while we're processing the previous one. So we're parallelizing it as much as we can. Yeah, no, constantly feeding through aircraft so it's always updating makes sense. And I was going to ask, I'm glad you, you addressed that. Like, it sounds like a pretty intensive system would have to use this, but it sounds like that's not the case. Just a high-end workstation isn't that hard to come by. So a lot of these no, depots and no, other locations it, could easily, like, get this rig set up and go. That, that's the idea. It, it's designed to be easily transportable as well because we're leveraging some of this bandstand temporary structure. What we're envisioning is that this could transport with a group of fighters that they're deploying somewhere, they can take their system with them, trying to keep the cost down so that we can have one at every base or with every unit. That's why we're leveraging a lot of like the commercial off the shelf structure. We're trying to leverage commercial off the shelf fringe projection. It's really like the integration and the data analysis and getting it all, all the pieces to work together and then proving it out that we're actually capturing all of the surface to the degree of fidelity that we want. And that kind of like, all this makes sense because it sounds like, I mean, it's a brilliant system. It's going to make the job of actually looking at these imperfections on the exterior of aircraft much easier. Uh, the question I have then for other people who like love using their handhelds or are very set in their ways for maintaining, how are you going to build confidence that this system not only works, but is really cool to use? Well, that's a good question. And it, it, it's a really important one also is that we try and get the inspectors involved as early as we can in the project to kind of show them the ideas that we have and let them kind of give us feedback on what they see will work and what they think might not work and we try and build consensus between the two teams and the, on the right way to go forward because as anybody that's tried to work tech transition or tried to sell something to somebody if they're you don't have their buy-in if they don't see a, a need for it or a use for it, they're not going to use it. Probably everybody on here has had a job where their boss says, oh, you're going to use this. And they're like, no, not really going to use this. So and eventually you just kind of just work it out of your system unless your boss is really adamant about it. It works that way everywhere. It, it's really better if you uh, have everybody working together to develop the solution to make their life easier. And this is one of those ones where it kind of sells itself in a way because the maintainers right now have to like walk around the aircraft and then climb up on the top and look all over. And, you know, there's some fall risk with climbing on top of an aircraft and 
for the most part, aircraft aren't damaged all that frequently. So it's a lot of, I'm trying to think of the right analogy, watching grass grow or watching paint dry is probably the even better one. I mean, you're looking for that one defect in acres of gray paint. It's not a fun job finding defects or looking at defects. That's kind of the fun part. But when your defect is a needle in a haystack, you're more likely just to kind of glazed over and missed out on it by that point. And, and that's just the nature of the job that our maintainers do a fantastic job doing their jobs it, it's just the difficulty of the job and we're trying to make that easier for them yeah and the fact that you're working so closely with them like you said to say hey like what is the system like what do you think can be used to improve this working hand in hand to make sure they want to use it it sounds like it's going to go by swimmingly so it's great to see that everyone's working like together because at some points like you said some things can just be manufactured handed over and said hey you're using this now so uh, the fact is more collaboration here shows just how important and how i really think like game changing this will really be yeah yeah I, I think it'll be fantastic for the, the Air Force and maintainers once we develop this further. So, and it's been a great project to work with. We, we have a really good team on it. No one does a project this big all by themselves. I mean, really, you have to have everybody involved from um, AFRL, the government side, our contractors, and all of them as well. So it, it's a real team effort. Absolutely. And I think that that's a really good way of kind of bringing this to a head because this team effort uh, wouldn't be possible without amazing people like you, John, and the people wanting to join this like a uh, non-destructive evaluation field. So now that people may have a better idea of what this field is, what it entails, and honestly, how cool it is, what advice do you have for people who may want to follow in your footsteps or do a similar job to yours within the Air Force? Probably take a lot of science and math. Don't be afraid to uh, take the hard classes. If you don't understand something from the book that the class is using, find another book that speaks to you. That's probably the biggest lesson I've learned over the years. And it took me a long time to learn it. But the book used in class may not be the best one for you. You got to go to the library and find the textbook that explains it in a way that you can digest it. If you have that drive, that passion, you can get there. You may have a harder path than somebody else, but you can make it happen. It's not always been easy sailing for me either. Yeah, I mean, don't be afraid to take the initiative. Like you said, do the research, put that foot forward, and who knows, someday your technology could be scanning X-Wings out there in a galaxy far, far away, checking for paint imperfections. You never know where it's going to go. Well, that that's right. I mean, you're right now you're you're supporting our maintainers, and, you know, we, we think about traditional Air Force, but, you know, they're held to such accountability to to keep our airmen and our guardians safe and you know maybe someday in those galaxies far far away too like ken said so thanks for joining us john all right thank you it's been great make sure to follow us on social media at facebook twitter linkedin instagram and youtube at af research lab and remember stay curious logging off